All right. Finally, a different address. The book of Acts. First time we've said that in six years, but here we are. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I don't think Acts will take as long as John, not that we're in a race, but there's a lot more narrative that we will cover and be able to make progress a little quicker, but maybe not so much quicker today. Acts 1, 1 through 5. Let's hear what the Lord says as this book opens. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive. You got to see it. You got to feel it. You got to get it. But the one who was slaughtered on a tree and buried in a tomb presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about or concerning the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, which was 10 days later. We'll talk about that later. All right. I don't know. I couldn't come up with a title, so it got really long and confusing, but that's what we have. The title of the message is The Life and Teaching of Jesus Christ Climaxed into the Birth and Growth of the Church. Everything He did, everything He taught, came to this eventful day in which the church is birthed. And since that day of the birth of the church, the church has been growing ever since and will continue to do so until He comes. The church exists between two points, the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. However long that period is, what we are doing is declaring what Jesus did and what Jesus taught until He comes. Now, I think we should, maybe we do, but we should marvel, as Dr. Yule told us during Easter week, we should marvel, we should meditate, and we should make known all that, he, all that Jesus did and all that Jesus taught. But why is it that we should do this? Why should we marvel? Why should we meditate? And why should we make known? Why? why? First, First and foremost, we should do this because He alone is worthy. This is why we marvel. This is why we meditate. This is why we make Him known because He's worthy of these things. He's worthy of our attention. He's worthy of all of our worship. He's worthy of all the proclamation we would do to make Him known. Everybody talks about something. We just, we're Christian. We talk about Christ. Second, we do this 
Because it's the very way in which the church was birthed. For 6,000 years, there's no church as we know it. And then, boom, there's church. People are baptized, people are saved, people are added to the church. It happens quickly. Supernatural work, if you will. Church is birthed. The church is sustained. And the church grows. Thirdly, we do this as... David Peterson says, the church lives between Jesus' exaltation into heaven and his return. The church's life is determined by these boundary markers. This is the last boundary marker. You want to use the phrase, the age of the church. The church will exist in the world until Jesus comes. No matter what the politics say, no matter how depraved the world may be, no matter how unmoral we may be, the church will not die. There's always going to be a church on the globe until Christ comes. Last, all that the Lord Jesus did and everything that he taught has provided the foundation for the birth of the church. The immediate results, think this through, the immediate results of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was bold gospel preaching. Now, this could be a whole sermon, but just, just as a, take a little piece. But think about these apostles hiding, fear, misunderstanding, confusion, bewilderment, all off track in so many areas through the gospels, just mere men like us, And then all of a sudden, the outpouring of the Spirit of God in Acts chapter 1, radical change, bold, clear, confronting all the world and every leader saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. How do you explain this except that the Spirit of God has come upon these men in order to bring forth the gospel in a way that impacts the world? This movement didn't just get contained in a Roman province or in a little city of Jerusalem. This thing became so real that it went to every part of the remotest corners of the entire earth. The gospel has gone forth. Churches are formed, and the missionary purpose begins to be accomplished. Note to self, this has not changed. Whether you choose to be a part of it or not is a different issue, but nothing's changed The gospel's to be preached, churches are to be planted, and missions are to go forth to the end of the world. Now, as we begin the book of Acts this morning, I do want to say a very short word about the title. In the ESV, you see the Acts of the Apostles is on the top of the page there in your Bible. So let me say a word about that. Uh, It is properly known as the Acts of the Apostles. We could properly call it the acts of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ through his apostles. If we want to be more accurate, we could say the acts of the Holy Spirit in the church of Jesus Christ through God's people. Let's say that one more time. The acts of the Holy Spirit in the church of Jesus Christ through God's people. This affects every believer, if you will. Or perhaps, and I'll lean a little bit this way, not that it's an argument, but Uh, Maybe we could agree with John Stott this morning, and this is his title for this great book. He says, the continuing words and deeds of Jesus 
by His Spirit through His apostles. That's the way the book opens, word and deed, and this is carried out through the Spirit by His apostles. So all of those things give clarity and sense to this book. All right, let us begin to take a look at this thing. I would say to you, in the form of a thesis, I would say this. The historical facts, we'll revisit this later, the historical facts of Christianity. Just let that phrase settle in. Not a myth, not a dream, not a vision, not an emotion, and not a feeling. That's not what we're talking about in Christianity. We're talking about historical facts. Like as if you talked about our country. You say, well, he's the first president. This is a historical fact. You talk about events, a historical fact. A hurricane hit the Gulf Coast in the year of and on the month and on this day. It's just a fact of history. It happened. This is what we do when we come with Acts, we come to Christianity. We're dealing with the historical facts of a real person who really lived on a real earth for the real glory of God. Look, even pagans who hate God cannot deny the reality that a man named Jesus walked on the land over on the other side of the world and did these events in live public form. Everybody knows this, whether you believe him or not, you know that it's true, it's historical fact. The historical facts of Christianity are the foundation, they're the very foundation for passionate advancement of the kingdom of God. I preach like I preach, and I live like I live, not because I believe a fairy tale. Fairy tales don't cause men to be martyrs. Facts of a real person who really died for me and forgave me of my sins gives me passion to live these things out for His glory. Panoramic picture. Big, broad picture, if you will. Verses 1 and 2. This is point number 1 if you want some points. Panoramic picture. Verses 1 and 2. Look there again in your text. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach till the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. The source, if you will, where the information comes from Here, there's a Greek phrase, I won't belabor this, and just uh, forgive me and get over my uh, continued belaborment to find Luke to be the author of Hebrews. But in this Greek phrase, first book, first book, this Greek phrase represents the writing of two or more books, the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, and in my view, the trilogy would be the book of Hebrews. Uh, There's confirmation for that from other scholars, and then there's people like Jonathan who'll never believe me. That's fine. I just want you to know that's what the phrase means, and he says, in the first book, and it reminds us, Luke has already written one book, and we know that. Nobody's arguing about that. We got the Gospel of Luke, and he's writing this book, and interestingly, in both Luke and Acts, he addresses it to the same person, Theophilus, who he addresses it to. Now, In Luke, he adds a couple adjectives, or an adjective to it, most excellent Theophilus. 
and I don't want to belabor this point. It's not a major point, but I do want to say something uh, about Theophilus. But I can't say much because that's all we have. Most excellent Theophilus and Theophilus, that's all the info in the Bible, so we can't make up a whole lot here, right? But I can tell you this, that Theophilus is a compound word, and when you put it together, it means friend of God or beloved of God. Or as the Puritans would say, every saint is a Theophilus, right? Every saint is beloved of God. All right, and then that adjective, most excellent, I can give you something about that, and that is that the most excellent was tied to leaders like Felix the governor in Acts 23, 26, and was also applied to his successor. So uh, we see that in Festus was his successor. We see that in Acts. So all I can tell you is most excellent in the Bible was at least applied to two governors. I don't know that that helps us other than that we can say that it's very probable that Theophilus had a ranking position in the world in that day, whatever that position may be. Well, that's all I know. Other than this, in Luke chapter 1 verse 4, I know this, and this is helpful to all of us. Whatever Theophilus' status may be, maybe it's here nor there, Luke writes to him in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts for a reason. We need to hear that reason, and we need to identify ourselves, if you will, as a Theophilus. And so Luke writes to him in order to give him clarification. Pause. I'm a little bit confused about Jesus. I don't understand all that goes on with Jesus. How does Jesus' life apply to me? What did Jesus do? What did Jesus teach? I'm a little bit in the dark about all this stuff about Christ, and these church people are always talking about Jesus. I have good news for you. Luke wrote a book to give clarification to who he is. So you could just read the book of Luke, and you would know what he did and what he taught, and you could say, oh, this is Christ. Look, don't live on third-hand information. Don't live off my information or uh, the internet or the TV information. Just read the biography for yourself. Luke is very talented. He's one of the best writers in all the New Testament as far as grammar and style. And he has given an orderly account that every one of you who would open up your Bible and read the Gospel of Luke and say, Ah, that is who Jesus Christ is. This is what he did. And this is is what he taught. And you can understand. And then when you understand Christ, if you read Luke rightly and you ask the Lord for help, you can get to the end of the book and say, Lord, I believe in you. I've never read about a man like you. You are awesome. You just read the book and say, I know a lot of people, but I don't know anybody like that. Luke has revealed that in his gospel. What's the substance of Luke's writing? You see here in verse 1, the ESV says, look at your text, he says after the word Theophilus, he says, I have dealt. And then you see with all that Jesus began to do. All I'm telling you is the word I have dealt and the word to do are the exact same Greek word. And they have different meanings, there's expansion of terms, but In the first one where it says, I have dealt, Luke's substance of what he's doing, he wrote, he composed, or you could say he produced, 
Or you could say, as the ESV does, he's dealt with. I've taken all the information about Jesus and what he did. I've taken all the information about what he taught and have wrote it down in a book. That's what he's saying. I wrote this gospel where it could be an orderly account and we could have an accurate information about Jesus. Now just pause for a second. It's not necessarily a side note. But is there not a mass confusion about who Jesus is in our day? I mean, if you went out and did interviews with people around the world, who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? I don't know what all you would hear from all the different religions, the non-religions, the atheists, and what everybody would say. And it's like, where have we gone? It's not like we don't have a source. I mean, I mean, like if nothing is written, I get the fact that people make up stuff off oral tradition. But Luke wrote it down. You don't have to be confused. Read how he was born. Read how he lived. Read how he died. Read how he taught. Read how he preached. It's in English. You can read it for yourself every day. That's what he tells Theophilus. I did this for you. He's done that for all of us. What Jesus did, you could say it this way if you'd like. Luke wrote his biography. Jonathan likes to read biographies. I like to read biographies. I'm reading uh, Rolf Bernard right now. It's a wonderful book, biography. But, but Rolf Bernard, don't even compare to Christ. <laughs> this is a great biography. And then all that Jesus taught. Luke showed us what Jesus taught by example. Some people teach, but if you watch the way they live, their teaching doesn't make any sense. Or it's, you know, just the exact opposite of what they teach. They teach one thing and do another, like the Pharisees. Jesus taught and did what he taught, and you can see it before your very eyes. Luke tells us that. Luke shows us what Jesus taught in word. Luke tells us what Jesus taught in his preaching. It's all there. He's like, and Jesus would affirm something like this. He'd say, when being accused, he's like, I taught openly and publicly in your synagogues every day. Just ask the people. Everything I taught publicly is what I lived privately. It's all consistently true. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, we read a similar statement that we find in the beginning of the book of Acts. In Luke 24, 19, he said to them, Jesus said to the guys on the road to Emmaus, what things? They said to him, here's what the guys on the road of Emmaus said. Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. So matching, doing it, and teaching. You see that at the end of Luke. You see it at the beginning of Acts. Now the scope. So we have a source. We have a substance of what Luke did. Now what's the scope? The scope is just a little bit more specific than the other gospel writers because it spans from the birth to the ascension. You look at you get the end of the Gospel of John, we don't have an emphasis on the ascension. But Luke specifically and clearly brings out the ascension. It's very important to Luke. And he starts the book of Acts with it. We'll see him writing about Jesus being taken up. He says, until that day, what day? Look there in in your text in verse 2, until the day when he was taken up. Taken up. In the end of the Gospel of Mark, 
So when the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up. And then that verse I preached at the sunrise service for Easter week down there at Shady Grove on the lake was 1 Timothy 3.16. And you read that great verse, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the ascension. It's important. Not only did Christ rise from the dead, that and enough is enough to blow our finite minds, but then he ascends before their very eyes unto the throne room of heaven. Ascension. So Luke's scope, birth to ascension, from the incarnation to glorification. Selection. So what do you mean by selection? These things here at the beginning, he says, are after he had given command, singular by the way, through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. That's whom he selected, whom he had chosen, these specific men to be the persons of the birth of his precious bride, the church. Between the resurrection and ascension, Jesus gave commands to whom he had chosen. Jesus' command was given through or by means of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is taking the truth of what Jesus commanded, and he's applying it to the apostles. So stop. I can study. I can memorize. I can meditate. I can translate the Greek language. I can do all of these things, but unless the Spirit of God, take the truth of God and sow it upon your heart and give you the reality of it in your own life, nothing's going to happen. You can be a great orator, you can be monotone, you can be loud, you can be quiet, but if the Spirit of God doesn't come upon the person and give them a new heart and a right spirit, they stay dead. I realize that every time I preach, I realize it this morning, the Spirit of God must take these things that are being unfolded here and make them real to you. I can't make them real. I can say they're real to me. I can say I believe them with all of my heart. But in order for you to have the same position, the Spirit of God has to do something in you. And by the way, they get in all these discussions about free will and all this other stuff. The bottom line is he chose these men and he didn't choose other men to be apostles. Work it out however you want, but this is the only ones he selected. Now, the Gospel of Luke is just a short form of application, but the Gospel of Luke is an orderly account of what Jesus did and taught. The book of Acts it's just going to continue that, what Jesus did and taught, through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what's going to happen in this book. Historical facts are important, but these facts only come to life by the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? I hope you're catching this. You understand, like, you can memorize the Ten Commandments, like people lost their minds when they took the Ten Commandments out of the schools and stuff, and, you know, people memorize the Ten Commandments. People memorize the Ten Commandments and commit adultery. Right? People memorize the Ten Commandments, and they won't give more than an hour to the Lord on Sunday. It's like knowledge and wisdom, these are different things here. And the Spirit of God takes those truths of the Ten Commandments and makes them real in your life. That's the thing we need, is the Spirit of God to confirm these in our own hearts. All right, precise proof, verse 3. Look again at verse 3 this morning. 
he presented himself alive to them. You get the phrase, after his suffering. And then you get a little confirmation. This after his suffering, this alive business is done by many proofs. And when did these proofs take place? Well, he appeared to them during a 40-day period. From his resurrection to his ascension, 40 days, multiple times, he appears. And not only did he appear to them, but when he appeared to them, he had something to say to them, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. This is what happened in this 40-day period. Now, I'll just give you the backdrop a little bit, but think about presented, because that's what our text says. He presented himself. So we go back to the beginning, just for a moment. You go back to Luke 2.22, and this is the first time Jesus was presented, right? When the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, his parents, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Hold up Christ, dedicated to the Lord. That was his first presentation. Parents did it at the synagogue during this purification time. Here in our text, Jesus doesn't have someone else present him. He presents himself. It's not a translation, but just maybe a thought. It's like he walks in the room and says, here I am. That may not be shocking to you this morning, but if you understand historical facts and you put yourself in their shoes, it's pretty shocking when a dead man walks in the room and says, here I am. That gets my attention. I saw you bleed. I saw you die. I saw Joseph of Arimathea. I saw Nicodemus take you down. I saw them wrap up your body. I saw them tote you to the tomb. I saw them place you in there, and I saw the stone put over you, and I saw them leave weeping and leaving you dead, and now you're standing in the room. He's like, I don't need a sermon here. I'm trying to grasp this, that a dead man is alive before me presented himself alive. And it says, when was this presentation? Our text says clearly, after his suffering. After his suffering. The word suffering, I would say, is a synonym for death. You say, how so? Well, like this, Luke 24, 46. Thus it is written, Christ should suffer right? Christ should suffer. And on the third day, rise from the dead. You read that verse, you know suffering means death, because rising from the dead makes no sense unless you're dead. Acts 3.18, by what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Acts 17.3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. This is, suffering is synonymous with death. The very one who was slaughtered on the cross, buried in the tomb, is the very one who self-presents himself before them and says, if you want to go back to Exodus, I'm fine. Let's go back to Exodus. You want to change up the vernacular? He walks in the room and he says, I am. I am. I am the one who died. I am the one who is alive. I am him. We've gone through the Gospel of John, the seven great I am statements. He really is the great I am. 
many proofs, he says in our text. A Greek word for proofs, tekmerion, is causes something to be known in a convincing or decisive manner. Whether I believe it or not, I can't deny it. You understand? Whether I believe this, meaning whether I commit my life to Christ, whether I submit to His Lordship and follow Him for His glory or not, I cannot deny the reality that Christ is alive. Not with any kind of logical sense between the ears can I make a claim that Jesus never rose. There's just too much proof. You say, you have these people debating. I have no idea how to debate. I only know how to declare. I'm just an ambassador. I'm not interested in debate. Christ Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and he has commanded all men to repent and believe. I don't believe that. That's on you, but that's the reality of the truth. I don't know why. I tried to come up with something really exciting, and you'd think I was really smart, but, boy, that didn't last long because I'm not smart enough to come up with anything. But for some reason, John, I mean, uh, John, wow, Luke, for some reason, Luke, uses a, a word for appear that's never used anywhere else. There's great words for appear, but he didn't use any of those, which he does in the rest of Acts. But for here, he uses this word that doesn't get used anywhere else. It, it doesn't mean anything different that I can find, but he appeared to be visible. That's basically the meaning. Jesus Christ was visible before them. Not a dream, not a vision, not a premonition, but a resurrected body standing before them. And he speaks to them about the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to buzz through these extremely fast. You know all of these anyways. But I can find ten presentations of Jesus between his resurrection and his ascension. I might have miscounted, and that's fine. But these are the ten that I know about for sure. Because he presented himself, many proofs. Here's ten of them. He presented himself to the women at the tomb. He presented himself to Mary Magdalene. He presented himself to the two men on the road of Emmaus. He presented himself to Peter in Jerusalem. He presented himself to 10 disciples, to 11 disciples, to seven disciples fishing in Galilee, to 11 disciples in Galilee, to 500 people at the same time, and to James, the Lord's brother. So there's 10 occurrences. Now think through that. So you've got every one of those appearances is eyewitnesses, right? And then we have this dilemma, not dilemma, but we have this revelation, if you will. 500 people, if they wasn't in a room, but you say 500 people in the same room looking at Jesus at the same time, it becomes really difficult to come up with an alternate story. I don't believe Jesus was alive. Look, there's 500 people who saw him with their own eyes. Look, turn, turn in your Bible. Maybe we could do it this way. I don't know how you argue with stuff like this, but, well, you just don't believe the Bible. But if you look at 1 John, I mean, how do you argue with a man like John in 1 John? He says in John 1, that which was from the beginning, notice what he says about Christ here, which we've heard, we've seen with our eyes, we looked upon, we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, 
we have seen, we testify, we proclaim, here is eternal life. How do you argue with a man who's seen Christ with his own eyes, touched him with his own hands, heard him with his own ears? Your argument's not going to win. And this is Luke presenting these things to us, saying, Jesus came for the space of 40 days with many proofs. Don't believe me? Ask Mary. You don't believe me? Ask James. You don't believe me? Ask 500 people. Don't believe me? Ask the apostles. You don't believe me? Ask the guys on the road to Emmaus. You don't believe me? Look, all of these people have seen speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And I took this from F.F. Bruce, but let me say it quickly. The kingdom of God is conceived as coming in the events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now listen, to proclaim these facts, life, death, resurrection, to proclaim these facts in their proper setting is to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. When we go out and preach, when we display this gospel, we're making the kingdom of God known. By the way, the phrase kingdom of God, I can go on for a long time here, but that implies what? There is a king. Kings rule over people, so he has people. His kingdom is real, and he's really in charge of all of it. And it also implies this, you in it or you're not. You're in the kingdom or out of the kingdom? Christianity is a religion based on absolute facts concerning a real historical person. I know I've said that a hundred times, but we need to hear it. Think about this, though. Every other religion can exist without its leader. Get rid of Buddha, and Buddhism goes on. Get rid of Joseph Smith. Mormonism goes on. But if there's no Christ, there's no Christianity. None. Because everything about biblical Christianity is based on a real historical person. No Christ, no Christianity. So we're building this thing not off emotion, but off of reality. It's not what our world needs. All this emotionalism and drama and all this self-help drug stuff and all this prescription stuff and all the vices of the world and all the alcohol, all the drugs, all this lotto, all this stuff we use to do something with our flesh and all of this mess, it's always shifting and moving up and down. Feel good, feel bad, happy, sad, good, bad, up, down. I'm just so confused going through this whole thing of life. Look, I need something real. I need something solid. I need something that won't be moved. I need a foundation I can build my life on, my marriage on, my family on, my whole existence upon. I need something that's tangible I can hold on to and that even if you tie me to a stake and say you're going to burn me to death, I need something that will cause me to sing while I'm being burnt. And I find that in the reality of a real person in real history who really died on a cross for real people that they might be forgiven and have everlasting life. And lastly, I won't say near enough about the Holy Spirit, but I assure you will have plenty more to say as the book unfolds because He is very central to it. But this promised power in verses 4 and 5, and you see that there in your text, while staying which is not the greatest translation, while eating 
Eating with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait on the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. John baptized with water, and you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So they're eating at the same table. The focus is upon fellowship. The Greek word brings that out. They're eating, fellowshipping together. I never did figure out this phrase, but it actually means to eat salt with. I have no idea what eating salt with them would mean. I'm not interested in eating salt, but nevertheless, uh, he's eating with them. Let's just take that. Um, in Acts 10, uh, I think Peter refers to this this way. Acts 10, 40, he says, God raised Jesus on the third day, made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Two commands, very simply. The first one's negative, the second one's positive. So in this eating together, fellowshipping with them, here's the negative. Wait. It's placed before this word depart. Do not depart. Do not go anywhere. Stay right here until something happens. In Luke 24, 49, so he ends the gospel with this same thought. In Luke 24, 49, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay. Don't leave. Don't depart. By the way, this side note, chase a rabbit, shoot the rabbit, I don't care. But by the way, just where you know, just where everybody's on the same page, a lot of things happen at church when you wait. Hey, I preached in church to 450 people in nice little chandeliers. I got through preaching, and I, they are all out the door before I could get off the platform they got out of there so fast. You see, one of the things I enjoy about By the Word Baptist Church is, is a lot of people wait around afterwards. They have conversation, and they fellowship, and we talk together, we laugh together, and we learn about each other. If you run off, you don't get that. If the apostles run off, they don't get the Spirit. Wait. Sway, be patient. Stop being in such a hurry. You got to go, go, go. Time, time, time. Schedule, schedule, schedule. Maybe God's worth waiting on. Maybe we can sit down for a minute. Maybe we can sit down and be still, and maybe God's got something to say to us. I can't help but think about Miss Sharon. Maybe I want to sit down and talk to her for a minute. Just one more time. Maybe just have one more moment. Maybe just one more moment together. Maybe it'd be something to encourage my heart. Don't be in such a hurry. This waiting is specifically tied to the missionary purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 24, 47, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning where? Jerusalem. Stay there till the Spirit comes, and when he comes, you'll know what to do. And then you get the adversative, this waiting, so don't depart, but wait. Wait for what? Well, at least in our text, apart from the other things I said, wait for the promise. Wait for the promise that the Father promised He would do. Stay until you're clothed with power from on high. Oh, or we could back up to John. I'm still hung with John a little bit, but Jesus says in John, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I'll ask the Father... 
and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. To be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. The world can't receive him because it don't see him and it don't know him. But you know him. Why? Because the spirit dwells within you. The great blessing of Christianity, dear church, every person rightly believing on Christ has the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in them to enable them for everything that the Lord has commanded. You don't have the Spirit, you're not saved. Right? I mean, you can't be saved without the Spirit. Ask Abraham. That's another story. Coming baptism, they're to wait on the baptism of the Spirit. John MacArthur, I don't quote him a lot, but uh, all the preparation and training that knowledge and experience can bring are useless without the proper might. Power had to accompany truth. This is not a new revelation. Go back to John chapter 4 and go to that well and look at what Jesus says to that woman. Those who are going to worship must worship in spirit. And truth. We got to have both. I don't want to come a professor lecturer. I don't want to just spit out facts and details. Point two, four, six, twelve. Isn't that great? Isn't that, I, I'm so smart today. Isn't that wonderful? Look, no, we want truth and spirit to stir us and make us alive. Ten days later, they experienced this. And to quote MacArthur just one last time, When the Spirit came, this is what we see. These apostles were changed from fearful, cowering skeptics to bold, powerful witnesses. And that is made clear through the rest of the book of Acts. It's important to know the Word of God. It's important to be accurate with the truth of God. But it must be accompanied by the Spirit. Spurgeon says it this way, We might preach till our tongue rotted, till we exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit uses the Word to convert that soul. So, it is blessed to eat into the very heart of the Bible until, at last, You come to talk in scriptural language and your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord so that your blood is bibline and the very essence of the Bible flows from you. Preach the truth, speak the truth, live the truth, but ask the Spirit of God to do that which only He can do. The Word goes forth, it doesn't return void because the Spirit of God implants it and makes it real in a person. Giving you factual history to a certain degree this morning of Christ. Now, we don't play games or do anything goofy here. I'm not going to dim the lights. I don't have a smoke machine. I don't have any fancy music. But you must respond to Christ. You have to make a response. You can't hear these things and remain neutral. You get two options. I want nothing to do with this Christ. I know He existed, but I don't care. Or, wow, I've never seen Christ in this way. Christ is real. I need Him. I ask for mercy. You can respond that way. You must repent. 
Turn away from everything that you've done. Turn away from all of this past life and say, all of that was me and I'm dead to that and I want to embrace Christ by faith. You should do that today. Look, you say, Pastor, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I've said. You don't know what I've did. You don't know where I've gone. You don't know all of my experiences. I know this. His grace is sufficient for your soul. I know this. You don't have to go to hell. You don't have to go to hell because Jesus paid it all. And if you had come to him by faith, he says, I'll forgive you and cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. If you would just believe Christ. The truth of the gospel demands a response. Die to self. Give your life to Christ. He becomes the master. And I would say to the Christian in the room this morning, nothing's changed since Christ ascended. The Great Commission is still in place. Well, our times are different. And your point? Nothing's changed here. Still the same gospel. Still the same commission. It's Everything that's necessary for salvation and building of the church has been done. Christ did it. It It's the responsibility of every believer to zealously serve our Lord by using our gifts to make the church healthy. Right? So let me say again, because it's dear to your heart, it's dear to my heart, but I don't think Sharon Allred ever stood on a box and preached on 5th and Main. She made the church healthier. Right? How many booklets has she folded in order that we could carry them out? You remember that July when it was 100 and something degrees and we were preaching at the fireworks show? No, that's not it. We were at the Sting Fling. It was hot. In that canopy, doing that survey thing. And there's a case of water. Where'd it come from? Miss Sharon brought it. Made the church healthier. Church. As we live between the ascension and his coming, whatever abilities God's given you, use them to make the church healthier in order that Christ gets the glory he deserves and the church would be healthy for your own good. Oh, I pray you receive these things today.